0: What did you give up for Lent this year? It's probably not the question you expected me to ask you this morning. No? uh, We don't really uh, require or endorse Lent here, in large part just because we want to be careful not to require uh, stuff that Scripture does not require. Um, That is to say, it's probably best to chalk up Lent to the category of what Colossians 2, verse 16 talks about. That verse says, Uh, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. All of that just means that there are certain practices that we are free in Christ to partake and free in Christ not to partake. So whether to make necessary Lent or to outright forbid Lent, I, I think would be to go too far. That being said, Lent is an ancient practice going back thousands of years. While Lent has changed some over the years, it began with the intention to prepare hearts for Easter. So for 40 days prior to Holy Week, people fast in some kind of form. They give up something, which is why I asked. Uh, Or also, they'll take on some fresh devotional initiative. Maybe they'll read the Bible every day during Lent. Now, many of you who grew up Roman Catholic or another tradition uh, have witnessed some of the more misguided aspects of what Lent has become. Uh, It kind of relates to the question I asked at the very beginning, what did you give up? For a lot of people, what they give up is all in all pretty superficial and pretty surface level. Uh, It often has to deal with your diet, like what you eat, Uh, so I guess for me, if You know, if I was to do this, knowing my affinity for breakfast, you know it very well. I'd probably have to give up eggs, which would probably be pretty hard for me, to be honest. Um, So for many, Lent is simply another part of cultural Christianity. It's just what the people around them have done for a really long time, and so they do it too. Um, More out of social pressure than out of love for God. And that's what made me think of Lent in light of today's passage. Whether or not you practice Lent, we all have the same danger of just putting ourselves up on a pedestal. Putting ourselves up on a pedestal for the good stuff we do. And so Lent can contribute to that if we're not careful. Lent can become another way we take solace in the good things we do rather than taking solace in what Christ has done for us. But beyond that, though the way that a lot of people practice Lent kind of reflects the general approach to God that a lot of people have uh, everywhere. It's that we get caught up in outward performance. We get caught up in outward performance and stuff, yes, that matters, you know, diets matter. But we get caught up in performance that we miss the deeper stuff. We miss the deeper heart behind everything we do. You see, underneath all of our habits, underneath all of our patterns, underneath all of our behavior should be a heart that loves God. So that everything we do, everything who we are, is simply of an overflow of our love for God. That's an entirely different way to live, isn't it? Now, cultivating this kind of heart may come about in special seasons of devotion, sure, but it also requires what Jesus says, denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, and following him. In Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, we read of Jesus speaking of the heart that's to be underneath all of how we live. So if you're not there yet, turn with me in the Bible to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. If you're looking at a Bible, it looks like this in the pew rack. You will find it on page 848. Uh, If you're new to the Bible also, uh, the chapter numbers, when I say that, that's the big number, big, bold 12. And then the verse numbers are the small numbers right after the chapter number. So we are in chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is... To love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Where to sum up our passage and what we can get out of it, uh, we could say this, love is the foundation and fulfillment of the law love is the foundation and fulfillment of the law that opens our eyes to how we really live and how deep our problem actually is it opens our eyes to how we actually live and how deep our problem actually is so what's the basis for how you live where does that put you how do we change These questions and more, I pray that God helps us with as we consider this part of his word. So three points, classic sermon, three points. I make exceptions to those rules. But (laughs) point one, the greatest. Point one, the greatest. So building up to where we are, Mark chapters 11 through 15 cover roughly one week of Jesus' life. So this amount of space devoted just to one week tells us, gives a little bit of a clue to just how important this week must be. It's often referred to as Holy Week. It begins on a Sunday, on what's called Palm Sunday, when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It's a royal entrance, but it's a unique kind of royal entrance because Jesus comes as a king. He comes as a king not as one who will kill and conquer, but as one who will die and be conquered himself so that those who believe in him may enter the kingdom through him. So that's the start of this week. The week continues after Sunday on Monday as Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem and he condemns the temple and he cleanses the temple from what it had become. See, the temple was meant to show God's heart to dwell with his people, to show God's heart to extend salvation to outsiders, and it had failed to live up to that. The people were keep, keeping others, especially Gentiles, away from God by what they were doing within the confines of the temple. And Jesus speaks out against that. That's on Monday. For the last couple of weeks, we've been with Jesus on Holy Week on Tuesday. And he's back in the temple in Jerusalem. And various religious authorities come up and confront Jesus. And they have several interesting conversations. You know, they ask, you know, where does ultimate authority come from? Does it come from man or does it come from God? They asked Jesus, what about taxes? Are we allowed to pay taxes? Should we pay to Rome or should we not? They asked Jesus, what happens after we die? Is this it or do we keep going? All very interesting conversations, but all have this underlying motive to trap Jesus, to try to trip him up. But today, this Tuesday is not done yet. And neither are these conversations with religious authorities. But as we pick up in verse 28, we get a sense and some clues that this encounter with the religious authority of his day is a little bit different than the ones that have come before it. You see here uh, that there, this time an individual scribe approached Jesus. Now, scribes as a whole were employed to be experts in the law and how to interpret it, basically kind of like lawyers. Now, unlike in previous scenes, you see that this scribe came up to Jesus alone. He's not within a group. And notice also that this scribe spent time listening to Jesus. He waited before he went up to Jesus. And actually listening to Jesus allowed this scribe even to be impressed with Jesus to some degree. Now, I think just like previous weeks, Mark has something for us here. Even the beginning of how this story starts. So right away, this individual scribe approaching Jesus alone alerts us to a couple of perspectives in how to approach people, especially other people, even that we might disagree with. So one, just the beginning of this story tells us to be careful of assuming that just because someone associates with a group, that that person will act the same way that that group acts. Just because someone associates with a certain group doesn't mean that that person will act in all the same ways that that group acts. Just because someone is a part of a group that has a very loud majority doesn't mean that they will act in the same way. Just because a group is associated with a a particular group does not mean that person is beyond the reach of Christ. So I think it alerts us to that right away. But also, just the actions of this scribe. When dealing with others, especially those with whom we disagree, we should have a posture that first listens. That listens first. So even in advocating for others that have faith in Jesus, we should have a posture that listens. I've heard that evangelism is not, let me tell you how you're wrong. <laughs> advocating for faith in Jesus involves us listening to where people have been, to how people have thought through deep issues of life. But then in turn, we ask other people to truly listen to what Jesus has to say. So just right away at the beginning of the scene, it's like last week in the passage we looked at with the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were insincere. They flattered Jesus. We could see that right away. That's a small lesson for us. And right this scene, we could see at least some measure of sincerity with this scribe. And that's a lesson for us as well. But as the scribe approaches Jesus, he asks Jesus another question. And it's not as sinister of a question as other scenes, but it's a tricky one nonetheless. What do you ask Jesus? He asks him, what commandment is the most important of all? Why was this such a big deal? Why is this such a hard question? Well, in part, the religious authorities of the day counted 613 commandments in the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. 613. I think it's 365 prohibitions, you know, thou shalt nots, and 248 positive commands, thou shalt. 613 commandments. That's a lot to sort through. So one way they classified these commandments is they labeled some as heavy, they labeled others as light. So heavy were the most serious ones, the essentials. Now, given the vast amount of commandments, it was a common practice in that day to ask great teachers of the time the same question this scribe asked Jesus here. So the scribe's asking more to Jesus than, hey, Jesus, there are, there are so many of these things. Now, tell me, which ones do we really have to follow? I mean, as if we can, we can obey some, but, but not others. We can leave others to the wayside. Now, the scribe's asking a little bit more than that. He's asking Jesus, what is the foundational commandment? What is the commandment from which all other commandments rise? That would be the greatest one. That would be the one everybody is accountable to. What's that one? We know just in certain arenas of our life that there are certain rules that if not followed, if not in place, everything unravels. I don't know what made me think of this, but take the public swimming pool, for example, okay? Uh, Have you been around a public swimming pool? Unfortunately, it's not that time of year. It's supposed to be 60 degrees, though, today, so maybe. Um, But at a public swimming pool, there is one bedrock commandment that anchors the swimming pools across the United States and across the world. No running. No running. That's the central bedrock commandment. If this commandment is not followed, anarchy and bedlam will descend on public swimming pools everywhere and injuries (laughs) will be catastrophic. (laughs) What's the central bedrock commandment that lies at the heart of how we live? What's the foundation upon which everything else is built? What is our no running? Now we'll get to what the answer should be. We'll get to that in time. But we all know, I know that you know, that what should be isn't always what is. The same worked back then. The people back then knew the right answer to what should lie at the hearts of how we live. But that didn't mean that they lived that way. No, you just read of the people of Jesus' time. For a lot of people back then, especially the religious leaders, the heart of how they lived, their actual greatest commandment, was to prove that they were good, righteous people. That was their goal. That was the heart of how they lived, to prove that they were good, righteous people. And they even used religious activities and practices to further that purpose. It's a good thing that people don't live like that anymore, right? What are our society's greatest commandments? According to our culture, what should lie at the heart of how we live? Have you ever thought about this? According to our culture. One author summarizes some baseline rules of life that run underneath our modern culture that pretty much just everybody assumes. So some examples. Rules that should lie at the heart of our lives. You are free to do as you wish as long as you don't hurt anybody. Another rule of our lives. You don't have a right to tell anyone else what is wrong or right for them. Another rule, the heart of our lives, culture assumes. You have to be yourself and not care what anyone else says. You see how all of these rules are very individualistic? the self are we are the sovereign ones the individual is the final arbiter of what is right and wrong of what is true and false this is the heart of how we are told we should live now the truth is that there are a lot of competitors for what should be the central bedrock commandment for our lives but what's yours what's yours what lies underneath all that you do? What is your no running? How would you answer the scribe's question? I'm Truly. You think of your days, you think of your weeks. How do you go about your responsibilities, your relationships? What's driving them? Is anything driving them? We might have a hard time answering this question because we haven't really thought through it that much. Don't slow down enough to think about it that much. Too busy. just coast. We can get some idea, though, of what lies at the heart of our lives when we hold up our lives against what Jesus says should lie at the heart of our lives. So let's go to Jesus' answer to the scribe's question. This will be our second point. The commands. Is it singular? Is it plural? You'll just have to wait. I know. The suspense is killing you. Clearly, though, there are two parts to Jesus' answer, so we can look at each part in turn, and then we can see how they fit together. So look again at verse 29. You notice the first part of Jesus' answer. Verse 29, it says, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, you might recognize this because we read it earlier on in the service. This comes from the book of Deuteronomy. So this command is known as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word simply for for hearing. To hear, it says, hear, O Israel. So the Shema in, in Jewish life was a statement on par with the Lord's Prayer. It was said all the time. The Jewish people recited this every morning and every evening. And you notice this command, it starts in a really curious way. It starts in one of the strongest statements of monotheism, that there is just one God. That's how it starts. So before stating the command, this verse stresses God's uniqueness, that he is unlike other so-called gods. So you keep in mind the original setting of the Shema, back in, way back in Deuteronomy. The Israelites are on the precipice of the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, Deuteronomy is primarily a series of sermons from Moses. And he's telling them and reminding them of what God has done for them and how are they to live as they go into the promised land. So the section where the Shema comes in Deuteronomy, the message is to future generations urging them to keep faith in God. Having enjoyed God's blessings, being delivered from slavery by God, Moses urges future generations to remember God and to keep all his commandments. So the opening statement of the Shema, that the Lord alone is God, you think about Mark's original audience. He's writing to people. He's writing to a group of people, likely to Christians in the city of Rome. Think of how they would have received The Lord's uniqueness, that the Lord alone is God. You think about the society in which they lived. They didn't live in a monotheistic society. They lived in a polytheistic society. Many gods. And so if they are called to singular devotion, loyalty, and love just to one God, that makes no sense if there are really many gods. Because if you give your devotion just to one God when there are lots of gods, then you risk offending other gods. So this gives us just a little bit of a hint of what happens when we don't give ourselves entirely to the one true God. When that happens, it's not just that we don't love God. It's also that we give ourselves to other gods instead. It means that when we fail to do the Shema, we practice idolatry. Because you think about it. None of us. We can't help but devote and love and be loyal to something. So if that's not God, then what is it going to be? To put in the language we used earlier, if your greatest commandment is anything but what Jesus says here, then you worship other gods, just to put it frankly. So these gods can be negative, it could be negative things like lust or bitterness or selfishness, or it could even be good or almost good things that we just devote ourselves to too much. It could be work, it could be children, it could be comfort. Love the Lord your God alone. What does it look like to do that? What does it look like to love God alone in the way that this commandment calls us to love God? Well, the verse says we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Just a helpful overview of what that means, helpful way to think about it, is thinking of our heart as the center of our thinking and affections. Heart is center of our thinking and our affections. The soul as the source of our desire and feelings. The mind as our understanding and our intelligence. And our strength as our energy. Now in figuring out what it looks like to love God in this way, we should remember a good clue for reading the Bible in general. You notice the repetition. If something's repeated a lot, there is a good chance that the author wants us to notice it. So what's that little word that's repeated over and over again in this verse? Can anyone notice it? All. It's all. I heard it somewhere. Is all. So notice this. The Shema is not love the Lord your God yeah, on the weekends. <laughs> love the Lord your God just in, in this part of your life. Love the Lord your God whenever you feel like it. No. All of who we are, all that we do, all that we think, all that we feel, all that we pursue should show our love for God. But that's just the first part of the great commandment. The second part is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Verse 31. What does it mean to do that? Now, a lot of people look at this command and conclude that in order to love people in this way, that we first have to learn how to love ourselves. Now, if you Google, I like to do this from time to time, just to tell you, if you Google self-love, you will get no shortage of results. One of the first results is an article by the Huffington Post. Uh, The title comes out and just says it. It says self-love must come first. So is it true? Is it true that we first have to learn to love ourselves before we can love our neighbors as ourselves? Now, I want to be diligent in this and give a little bit of nuance. The Bible does talk about our identity, how we view ourselves. The Bible does talk about that. But it roots that identity not in us. It roots it in God. First, that we are made in God's image. And second, that we are united to Christ. So in Christ, we are forgiven, righteous in God's sight. That's a worth and an identity that doesn't hinge on our status. It doesn't hinge on our performance. It doesn't hinge on the opinion of others. It is much stronger than that. The Bible does talk about that. But loving our neighbors as ourselves isn't talking about How we view ourselves is not talking about that. Rather, it operates under the assumption that we already know how to love ourselves. We don't need to. We already know how to do it. That's because the love spoken of here is more than our opinion and feelings toward other people. It's our actions toward other people. You see, loving ourselves here isn't referring to our self-esteem. It's referring to our self-concern. Nobody has to learn that. So just, just think about it. Even people with low self-esteem show their intense concern for themselves because why would their self-esteem bother them so much if they, didn't be, if they weren't concerned for themselves? So to love our neighbor as ourselves then is to show the same concern we have for ourselves and our needs in caring for others in their needs same level of consistency, the same level of desire, same level of energy, so forth. It made me think of a short documentary. It was released a few years ago. It's called Boat Lift. Uh, You may have seen it, it's very short. Uh, It's about ship captains who went to Manhattan's harbors on 9-11. They evacuated over a half a million people uh, on that day, on September 11th. Uh, Vincent Artelino, one of the captains took his boat to Manhattan that day uh, after he had watched the events on television like many of us did, uh, watching the the buildings burning and crashing and planes uh, riding into them. And Vincent told his wife, uh, you know, the only way that a lot of people are going to make it out of there is if they get out by water. And I have a boat and I need to do something. Even if I just save one person, Vincent said, Even after you save one person, that's one person less that will have to suffer. The same level of concern you have for himself, he has for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, most of us won't be placed in those kinds of extreme situations, maybe. But we have opportunities to love people as ourselves every day. To show the same concern we have for ourselves, for others. Uh, I thought of my mom and my mom's love for me growing up. Plenty of ways she showed it. Plenty of ways she still shows it. But a small way that stuck out to me as I was thinking about this is, is that whenever my mom made us dinner, she always had us eat first. She always made sure. We ate first, and she made sure we had everything we needed. She always made sure, at least to the best of her ability, that it was hot when we ate it. All that's in place, then she would eat. She always ate last. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is the greatest commandment? What's to lie underneath all that we do? The foundation upon which everything else is built. What is our true no running? It's to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, And to love our neighbor as ourselves. You see what Jesus says at the end of uh, verse 31. He says that there is no other commandment greater than these. Commandment. That's singular. That's not plural. These parts go together. It's the basis of the entire law. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will say that love is the fulfillment of the law. Meaning that if we love God and if we love neighbor, then naturally we will follow through in obeying God and doing good to our neighbor. And if we don't love God and don't love neighbor, when we sin against God, it's more than we just that we did something bad. It's that it began because we weren't standing on the right foundation. We got off of it. We sinned because we stopped loving God. It's the foundation of everything. Love God, love neighbor. Jesus says we can't have one without the other. And even the scribe understood that you can go about the greatest devotional practices. Look at verse 33. You can offer whole burnt offerings. So you throw sacrifices on the altar. A lot of times you keep a little bit for yourself. You have leftovers you can eat later on in the week. No, whole burnt offerings. You give it all to God. You can do that. And the scribe even understood, if that doesn't change how you treat people, then you don't really love God. We might all know this in our heads, but just to remind you, just because somebody reads the Bible, just because somebody has really great church attendance, just because somebody doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, doesn't curse, can we add? Just because somebody practices Lent, just because someone does all of those things, does not automatically mean that they love God. It doesn't. You want to know if you love God? One of the very first tests. How do you treat people? How do you treat people? Remember what we read from 1 John 4. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And another reminder, this is more than just the people that you like. I wish it only applied to that. But remember, there is another scribe who asked Jesus after Jesus said, you got to love your neighbor as yourself. So he asked Jesus, all right, who is my neighbor? Thinking he can find a little bit of a loophole in that. And that's when Jesus told this parable of the Good Samaritan. The story of an enemy loving his enemy as himself. These commands go together. But you know, a lot of people will say, um, you know, Steve, I've, I've been trying to listen, politely listening. I've, uh, I'm with you on a lot of the stuff you said. Uh, just a lot of content, so I'm trying my best to follow. I know, thank you. Um, but I don't think I need to be religious to be a good person or to care for other people. I just don't think I need to do that. What do we say to that? I, I say like, like that's legitimate. It's a leg- legitimate thought to have. And on the surface, there is some truth to that. It's called God's Common Grace. It's another topic, it's another day. But there is a reason that loving God comes first in these two parts. There's a reason that loving God comes first even look at it, we might skip over this too quickly. Notice that the love we're to have for God is different than the love we're to have for people. We don't love our neighbor with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because that would place our neighbor on the same plane as God. So to sum it up, we have to keep love for God and love for neighbor together But love for God must come first. Because believe it or not, we love people best when we love God first and more. Why? Why? Because true love in its purest form comes only from God. Think back again to 1 John 4. What does it say? God is love. True love in its purest form comes only from God So further, to love anything more or before God is inappropriate and wrong simply because nothing else is God. So when we don't love God first, you know what ends up happening? Is that we end up making love into whatever we want it to mean. And look at the mess that's gotten us in. Point three. What's missing? What's missing? Every time I leave the house... I do the three-part slap. I'm not the first one to observe this, many people have commented on this, I just can relate to it very well. As I'm walking out the door, I hit my right thigh, I hit my left thigh, and then I hit my back left pocket. That's because uh, my right pocket is always the keys, my left pocket is always my phone, my back left pocket is always my wallet, and I can feel right now my keys are missing. This is so ingrained in me that a couple pairs of my jeans that I've had for a long time actually have the outline of my phone on the the left pocket. My fiancé tells me, get rid of those jeans. Uh, But I'm like my dad, I'm not getting rid of them, ever. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) If I fail to do the three-part slap, sooner or later, I will get the suspicious sense that I'm missing something. You know that feeling when you know you've forgotten something, you just don't know what it is. Now that we've established that this is the greatest commandment, that this is what should underlie all of our lives, that this should be the no running of our lives, there should be a part of you that that doesn't feel comfortable. There should be a part of you that doesn't feel comfortable. You should have a creeping sense that something is still missing. We can leave all this here, just, you know, love God, love neighbor, the end. We could just leave it. But there's a problem. None of us have lived the way that the greatest commandment calls us to live. None of us. No amount of us trying can make us live in the way that the greatest commandment calls us to live. No amount of us actually doing the greatest commandment can make up for all the times we lived in the opposite way the greatest commandment calls us to live. So even as the scribe in this scene agrees with Jesus' answer, there's something still missing. What did Jesus say to him in verse 34? He tells the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom. You are not far from the kingdom. Last time I checked, the kingdom of God is not like horseshoes or hand grenades. Being close does not count. There is a difference between being near the kingdom of God and being in the kingdom of God. It wasn't enough that this man agreed with Jesus that we should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's fine. That's a starting point to agree with Jesus on that. But we have to keep going. Because once we realize that's how we should live, we should soon quickly realize after that we haven't lived that way. One pastor who preached through the Sermon on the Mount, that's uh, the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, he did some research just getting ready for preaching on the Sermon on the Mount and he came across a professor named Virginia Stem Owens, who's a professor at Texas A&M of English and Literature. Some uh, years ago, this professor gave her freshman students uh, the assignment of reading the Sermon on the Mount and writing a response paper to it. And most of them, believe it or not, Texas, you know, at the heart of the Bible Belt have never heard of the Sermon on the Mount, had never read it. So she knew she was in for some doozies of responses. Here are the couple of responses that she got. I do not like the essay, The Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read, and it made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Someone else said: The things in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. To hate a man is murder? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I have ever heard. College freshman. (laughs) Reflecting on this, Virginia Stem Owens said that she believed her students were desperately looking for cover. Desperately looking for cover. That her students knew that the Sermon on the Mount, that it would be great if everybody around them lived like that, But they know that they couldn't live like that themselves. In the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, if anyone has read the Sermon on the Mount with an open mind, they would cry out, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. The same should work for this scribe as he hears the greatest commandment. But there's something missing in his response, isn't there? You know, there's something missing in his response to Jesus. And what is that? It's not that, hey, Jesus, I know I haven't done this, but you know, now I will try harder than I ever have before. I'm going to do my best. That's not what's missing. It's not missing, hey, Jesus, I know I haven't done this, but you know what, from now on, I'm going to make my good outweigh my bad. That's going to be my life's goal. That's not what's missing either we get a clue of what's missing and how this scribe addresses Jesus. Look at verse 32. What does he call Jesus? Teacher. That's not wrong. Jesus is a teacher. This man, though, needed more than a teacher. This man needed a savior. And you know who was right in front of him? The savior. The savior was right in front of this man. Right in front of the scribe. That's how Jesus can say he wasn't far from the kingdom. Right in front of this scribe was the one who could bring him into the kingdom. Right in front of this scribe was the one who had never failed to love God with all of his heart, his mind, his soul, and strength. Right in front of this scribe is the one who loved his neighbor as himself at all times. And right in front of this scribe was the one who died for all of our sin of not loving God with everything we have, of not loving our neighbors as ourselves. Right in front of our, this scribe was the one he needed. Friends, this morning, do not be satisfied with being near the kingdom of God. Look at the one who's right in front of you who can bring you into the kingdom of God. And trust him alone. Not your good works. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. No more being friendly to Jesus. No. Come to Jesus with everything. He's right in front of you. He he alone is the Savior. He alone is the substitute who brings us into the kingdom of God, the one who we follow with everything we have, everything we are. And what happens after that? What happens after that? Do we leave the greatest commandment behind? Jesus did that. Now we don't have to. That'd be a good deal. Now, once we are forgiven and justified by faith in Christ, we actually can follow the greatest commandment like we never have done before. That's not just because we who believe in Jesus now have a new power and desires and hearts to follow Jesus. We do have that by the Spirit of God in us. But also, we who believe in Jesus have hearts transformed by God's love for us. See, we love God, we love neighbor, not as those who earn God's love, but as those who have already received God's love. Back to 1 John 4 again. What does it say? Very simply. We love because he first loved us. The greatest commandment shows us that we have sinned in far deeper ways than we ever realized. But that means, you know what that means? That God's love for us in sending Jesus to live and die in our place is also far deeper than we ever realized. Having received the deepest love ever, we can now channel that to others. Let's pray. Lord, on Christ's solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We trust in you alone. And God, we admit, we confess that we have have not lived in this way you called us to live. It's not just that we tried really hard and failed. No, we, we went the opposite way of you. And yet, Lord, you sought us out. Lived in our place, died in our place, and now are accepted in you. With that love, God, help us then to love others, produce fruit of that love in our lives. Do this for, your, for the sake of your great name and do this perhaps for the first time for some individuals here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.